0: Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is a Neuro-Mcrit We. So what we have here is the audio-only version of a lecture given by Neha and Casey at The Hospitalist and the Resuscitationist. That's Philippe Rolla's amazing conference he gives uh, in Canada, and he was kind enough to let us post both the video and I took the audio out here as well of a two-part lecture. This is part one. Part two is coming soon. Now, if you actually want to see the video, then just go over to the MCRIT site and you can see the YouTube video. I know some of you like listening in your car or on the train or while working out, and you'd rather uh, substitute the audio only for the video. And then what you could do is... Uh, they did a great write up on the blog site. So if you just want to listen to this on audio and then check out the blog post, I think you will get 99.5%. That's what I estimate as the amount you will get by going audio only if you check out the show notes at some point afterwards. So here you go. The audio only. If you want the video, like I said, stop listening here and go over to the mcrit.org site and you will find the post freely open to anyone. All right, let's get into it right now.
1: All right. Hello, everybody. Um, well, welcome. This is our uh, Time is Brain, Fundamental Pearls, and the Cutting Edge in Neurocritical Care. Um, my name is Casey Albin. I am a neurointensive at Emory. i um, delighted to be here, and I'm so happy to be actually giving this talk to make it more interactive with someone who I just really, really look up to in neurocritical care. And I'm so glad that she can also um,
2: be sharing some of the cutting edge in some of these cases Thank you so much, Casey. It's such a delight to, to partner together and collaborate on NeuroMcrit. So I'm Neha Dengayich. I'm a neurointensivist at Mount Sinai, and Casey and I are team NeuroMcrit, and we are delighted to be at the h and conference.
1: So just walking through some quick disclosures. None of them are really relevant to what we're going to be discussing here, um, but they're listed here for you to check out. Again, shouldn't really uh, impact um, what we're going to be talking about
2: today. And same you. All right. So our
1: objectives today, this would really be kind of a fun and interactive um, uh, case-based approach to some of the more common and some of the things that you may not see all of the time, but have probably come across during um, your care. So we are going to use real cases to walk you through how we approach these challenging cases, leaving you with some pearls to optimize care, how you can do this in a really like Uh, precise way. And then also review a little bit about some of the cutting edge neural research that's going on and how that's going to be shifting the care of these patients um, in the kind of, you know, next, you know, weeks, months, and
2: years. So let's jump right in. So Casey, here's a case for you. Our patient is a 62-year-old woman with a history of atrial fibrillation. She's on anticoagulation. She's using warfarin. And she also has a history of chronic hydrocephalus. She's presented for this endovascular third ventriculostomy. And uh, a few days before she's supposed to come come in for this elective procedure, she's been asked to hold her warfarin. Mm -hmm. Post-operatively, she wakes up. She's doing well. She's awake, alert-oriented, and able to move all her extremities with full strength. Next morning. With your early mobilization paradigm, she's already working with PT and she just suddenly becomes unstable on her feet and she's appearing a little presyncopal. So PT puts her back in bed with uh, nursing help and she's still kind of confused and she appears to be intermittently having a left gaze preference. Mm -hmm. So what is going on in your mind? What are your differentials? What are your next steps? Yeah. So I think a couple of things for those of you
1: not taking care of these uh, endovascular third ventriculostomies, what they're going to do is they're poking a little hole in the third ventricle that connects that to the pre-pontine cistern, which is a way to treat hydrocephalus, right? So we know that she has chronic hydrocephalus. So to me, I have this woman who has a history of hydrocephalus, just had a procedure to treat the hydrocephalus and now is looking a little bit worse. So I think the first thing I'm going to think about is like, is this just worsening hydrocephalus? Did the procedure not work as well as we had hoped? Um, She's unstable on her feet. But what gives me pause is that she has a focality, right? So you mentioned that she had this left gaze deviation. And that to me always makes me pause. Like hydrocephalus should kind of cause nonspecific findings. And so the other thing that I start to worry about in any of my patients who've had a recent neurosurgical procedure is is there a hemorrhage, right? They go in there and they poke around. I'm also worried about does the patient have a seizure, right? So we know that seizures can leave people after, you know, in their sort of post seizure phase that they can also get some of these focalities, but she was working with physical therapy during the whole time. We didn't get any, like, we didn't get any report that they saw focal twitching. Now, sometimes things are missed, but again, I'm a little bit less convinced about that. And then I always think about stroke, no matter you know, the sort of risk factors, but in her case, we have a very strong risk factor for stroke, right? So you had mentioned that she is someone who is on anticoagulation and obviously she just had a brain procedure. So she's not on that anticoagulation right now. And so to me, someone who's just packing away an AFib, you know, has been off their Warfarin for, you know, at least uh, enough days that they're now at a normal INR. I'm pretty nervous when they develop. And so my next step is I obviously want to go to the bedside and do an exam myself. And if I were to find, you know, someone that has a left gaze deviation and now they've got a little bit of right-sided weakness, that to me is going to be really concerning. But ultimately, I'm going to want a head CT and a CTA because of that concern for is this an ischemic stroke?
2: And here's your CT head. So on the non-contrast CT head. Now, we didn't really end up seeing any hemorrhage. And on the CT angiogram, on the other hand, mm. we're, we're beginning to see some findings, uh, you know, just comparing the left to the right, we see this missing component. We know that there is a uh, left M1 um, that uh, is missing distally, but appears to be reconstituting uh, distally. So Casey, what happened to this patient?
1: Yeah. So this was a really interesting case of someone who, after their procedure, um, you know, they had, they had risk factors for atrial fibrillation, uh, for, for stroke with their atrial fibrillation. And so post-operatively, they threw clots, like actually multiple clots. And what we could see here is um, that we caught this early. And so just to walk people through kind of what we're looking at when we get CT perfusion, this has at my institution become sort of part of our package of stroke care. So if you are ordering a CT stroke protocol, our, our you know um, bundle is going to be that you're going to get a CT, a CTA, and a CTP. And again, what the CTP is doing is it's looking at the, the part of the brain that's getting so little blood flow that it's already developed in ischemic core, right? And that's the purple. So the purple is kind of the stuff that, you know, unfortunately is probably not salvageable at this point. What's really interesting is the places in the brain that's getting blood is just getting there a lot more slowly than we would want it to. And that's green. And so a lot of green, I always think of green means go. If you've got a lot of green, there's a lot of things to save, right? So this is a really good, what we think about when we think about mismatch, right? So the patient has a small amount of core, meaning that tissue can't be saved. And then a lot that can be intervened upon. And so what we found was that this woman had just embolized a clot to her M1, probably because of her atrial fibrillation. Um, And I think that there was also some degree of sort of post-operative Hypercoagulable state, right? So, whenever you're doing any sort of operation, you're putting in motion the coagulation cascade, right? You have endothelial injury and that causes procoagulants. And so, I think this woman not only had atrial fibrillation, but also had a really high risk factor for forming clots everywhere. So, some really good clinical pearls in this situation, I think, are gaze deviation, contralateral weakness. So, someone who's looking to the left and has right sided weakness, that should Always make you think is this ischemic? These deviation ipsilateral weakness when the eyes are looking quote wrong way, that to me is more suggestive of seizure. Again, you know, there are there are certainly times where that doesn't always respect the rules, but those are some of the two things that I really think about and try to localize with my neuro exam. I think one pearl that we cannot, you know, give this this talk without saying is that acute coma or changing consciousness, without a clear other reason, always think to yourself, am I missing a basilar stroke, right? Um, I think that's one of the most important things that we can leave you with. And then think about risk factors, right? Just as you were saying the case, I mean, it's a light bulb in terms of people who have risk factors for stroke.
2: And what's next? And just like Casey was mentioning about, you know, getting a CT head, CTA, head and neck, You know, one easy way to remember that CVA is equal to CTA. Even our paradigm includes CTA, head and neck. Now, whether we're going to do CT perfusion or not, whether it's available at your facility or not, of course, you just have to be aware. Are you you going to be able to get that or not? And then for that clinical pearl of uh, always thinking about Basilar for patients with acute coma, Every year, Casey. Every year, this happens to to our uh, residents, our ED residents, our neurology residents. There's a patient who appears like they're having a seizure, or uh, or they're having alternating hemipresses and they slip into a coma. Making sure that basilar top of the basilar is uh, is in your top differentials. Super important. You don't want to miss it. Life saving. Totally.
1: I think that that is uh, yeah one of the the chief pearls that we could leave anyone with neurologists or critical care providers or EM providers, you know, and sometimes, and sometimes their like neuro exam is kind of, there's kind of not much to say. Maybe they have a little ophthalmoplegia, maybe their pupils look a little bit not right, but again, and I think what you're getting to brings up the, the sort of some of the pearls about recognizing these things efficiently, right? So one of the, the, Really key aspects of stroke care is being really quick to both recognize the stroke syndrome and then to optimize your flow to um to get that patient the the scans that they need. Um, I cannot tell you how many strokes I've gone to that we are just struggling with an 18 gauge uh, IV for contrast administration. The second that you think about this patient is having a, could be having a stroke, have your best. Like the best person who is like able to get an IV, start working on getting that good IV. And this is particularly important in the ED where they may not have one, but even sometimes our like hospitalized patients have small, smaller gauge needles, put that patient on the portable monitor, start getting them ready to transfer. And you, as the one running a code stroke, you have to be the one directing all of this. And so keep these in mind, get the, get the, um, the 18 gauge IV, get them hooked up, and then think about early, like, is this person in the TPA window? Do they have any major TPA um, contraindications? And if they don't, get their blood pressure less than 185. Um, Obviously, our patient here had just undergone a neurosurgical procedure, like they weren't getting TPA anytime soon, but sometimes that's not the case, even for our hospitalized patients.
2: And now let's talk about how thrombectomy has become the gold standard for Uh, patients who have large vessel occlusions. So from uh, the Hermes uh, meta-analysis that included uh, patients from the five early RCTs that pretty much Change the paradigm in how we provide care for patients with acute ischemic stroke and large vessel occlusions. This included a uh, little over 1,200 patients and compared uh, patients who had endovascular thrombectomy and those who were assigned to just medical treatment alone. And endovascular thrombectomy significantly reduced disability as measured by the modified Rankin. And you can see the uh, shift analysis on the right hand side. Uh, We know that in the adjusted analysis, the number needed to treat to improve uh, disability um, and to reduce uh, mortality from stroke uh, is only only about two to three patients. So it's a very powerful form of therapy. And we know uh, after several randomized controlled clinical trials that this is the gold standard. So where do we go from there then? Once we know that thrombectomy is a gold standard, so then can we extend the window? So let's talk about the tissue clock. So everything that we see clinically, so like Casey was saying, the CT perfusion imaging can help us potentially identify what areas of the brain have already suffered from an infarct or what is that infarct core, and then how much tissue is at risk. And uh, specifically looking at, on the left-hand side of the panel, diffuse uh Three, and then on the right-hand side of the panel, Dawn, Diffuse 3 looked at patients in this window from 6 to 16 hours, and Dawn extended that window from 16 hours to 24 hours, so included patients who were between 6 to 24 hours, and looking at this tissue clock, this mismatch, and in both of these trials, uh, there was an improvement, a profound improvement in outcome, so Yes, time is brain. The earlier we recanalize someone's blood vessel, uh, when there is a large vessel occlusion, they're going to have a better outcome. However, do not deny this therapy to somebody who presents later.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that brings up like such important questions about this because, you know, thrombectomy obviously like was such a game changer for our patient population, just dramatically changed how a stroke floor runs where like we used to have these large vessel occlusions who would have this dramatic stroke burden. And now they come in, they get their thrombectomy and they leave the next day. And this is great. But there were so many exclusions to who was allowed in those initial trials. And so I was hoping that you could kind of walk through some of like how this is evolving and how this is probably going to keep evolving to get this this like incredible like truly paradigm shifting treatment to more people
2: even in the last 2 years we've seen an explosion in literature i thought 2015 was like this this big year for thrombectomy <laughs> trials and since then it's been so hard to keep up with all of this literature so what if you don't have access to ct perfusion imaging is is a non-con ct head the aspect score calculation on a ct head enough to appropriately select patients for thrombectomy simple answer yes That's probably enough as well. What about patients who have a low aspect score? So our worry about patients with low aspect score used to be that if you recanalize uh, their blood vessels, they're potentially going to have a hemorrhage. They're not going to benefit because they may have completed their stroke already. But this uh, Rescue Japan limit was was presented at the International Stroke Conference uh, earlier this year. And here's another patient population that may benefit from thrombectomy mobile stroke units i think that this is another you know this is very much like uh, sci fi you know where you where you take where you take ct scans to the patients and you're giving giving patients uh, early access to thrombolytics and and uh, also developing a change in how our care delivery paradigm is uh, is changing not just bringing patients to where they need care but taking the care to patients to uphold time is brain then what about thrombolytics should we, and I know there are several of our ER colleagues who are probably excited to read these studies. Let's not do thrombolytics. Well, caution (laughs) is advised. Not yet. yet. Caution is advised. So yes, while there are several studies that show there may be some potential benefit, some some, uh, time that you can buy, uh, but it really matters on how good your processes are. So I would I would advise caution before you say bypassing thrombolytics. Also because, like Casey said, there are, there may be better thrombolytics that that could also become available to your centers. For example, TNK, um, higher uh, modified rankings, So older patients, patients who have some disability before they come in with their stroke, they may also be potential candidates. And then not just large vessel occlusions. What about smaller, you know, medium vessel (laughs) occlusion. That's another, you know, that's another realm. So there's a lot that's happening in this uh, uh, by way of how rapidly this literature is expanding. So I would uh, highly recommend that, uh, you know, you keep your um, eyes on the ball uh, and these Indications are going to expand. Context for each patient is going to matter. Make sure that you're working collaboratively with your endovascular specialist, stroke neurologist, neurointensivist, and adapt your site level processes to improve access to thrombectomy. Totally.
1: So, so maybe not, maybe not thrombo, uh, thrombectomy for everybody, but we are becoming so much more inclusive, and I think that there, be, you know, begins to be. a at least a reasonable conversation about who to include um, beyond just those like excellently selected ones that had to be included in the trials to prove the efficacy of this treatment. It's really exciting. What's also really exciting is that we are getting better at our um, uh, fibrinolysis. So I think fibrinolysis. Um, So TNK, I actually don't have this at my center yet and I really want it. Uh, I'm hopeful that some of We you do.
2: We, we changed all of our politics to, you know, right now we're doing only TNK at Mount Sinai Health System.
1: That's amazing. See, I think this is the goal. And the reason it's the goal, I think, is because it is just easier, right? So TPA has been the OG treatment and stroke care for a long, long time since the initial um TBA trial back in the 90s, um, FDA approved up to three hours. The dose is kind of annoying though, right? Like you have to give um, a little bit, you give this 0.09 as a bolus, and then you do this infusion, and you have to have someone to, to mix it. And it's just, it's a lot to do. Whereas T and K being genetically modified, um, it has greater fibrin specificity and then a longer half-life. In the two of those things together means that it's much easier to give to patients as a single push. Um, I do want to note that this is not FDA approved yet. Um, And the packaging insert actually may reflect the dose that's given for myocardial infarctions. I don't think that's a reason not to use it for a stroke. But again, I think Systems are transitioning to this. Most systems, I think, are actually looking at just switching entirely as Mount Sinai did, that this will be the only thing that we use so that there's not confusion and going back and forth. But I know some places do do both because they're enrolling patients in trials that use TPA. Um, Again, I think this is going to be easier. I think this is going to be the way that stroke is delivered and treated. And I think that we're going to luckily have some more information. Already, we do have some some of the cutting edge literature from the NORTEST and Extend IA phase trials um, that were again smaller studies, um, or larger in the case of Nortest was a large study, but unfortunately inc- included a lot of stroke mimics and therefore raised some questions about well, you know, if 17% were stroke mimics, like can we really say that this is great for stroke? Um, but at least in looking at people who got TNK and then went to thrombectomy, what we saw was um, a higher rate of recanalization in the patients that got T and K. Then they did a dose finding trial, which showed that even at a lower dose of T and K, they were still getting the same level of recanalization. So again, I think that there's data, there's going to be even more data coming out in the next year. And I, I imagine that we're going to see a lot of health systems start to switch to TNK. So to leave you with a little bit of follow-up from this case, as you can see, here's the angio when they went in, you know, again, because we saw these focal changes early, because we initiated a stroke protocol early, they were able to go directly to the angio suite after that CTP, pull the clot out, and actually, I think, saved a, a, a huge amount of disability. We also found that there was a subclavian artery thrombus. Again, this was just a really procoagulant state. But the things we want to leave you with are, is there focality? And if so, consider a stroke syndrome. Have that early on your differential. Get a CTA because that is allowing us to get that patient to thrombectomy, right? We want to find that M1 occlusion um, or even a basilar occlusion and get that person to a definitive treatment. We are getting more and more inclusive about who can get thrombectomy. And then keep keep your eye out for more T&K research because this is, this is the way of the future. So we're going to switch gears and now, Neha, I have a a case for you. So this is a 49-year-old woman. She has a history of hypertension and was found attended at home by her son. On arrival to the ED, she's hypertensive to the 190s of her 110s, her heart rate in the hundreds. Um, She's not febrile. Uh, She does not open her eyes to sternal rub. She does not make any verbal response. Her left pupil, though, is four millimeters and sluggish. Her right pupil, three millimeters and brisk. She's extensor posturing on the right and withdrawing on the left. Triple flexion in the lowers bilaterally. And so her GCS, we put her at around six. So she's intubated for the inability to protect her airway that GCS being less than eight. What next? So here's the data that you get. And as you can see, if you're following along with the slides this is a pretty impressive hemorrhage burden, right? Pretty large hmm So Neha, I have to ask you sort of, what are your next steps? You get a patient with a pretty poor exam, pretty large bleed. Um, what do you do and how are you approaching this?
2: And just like everything in medicine, ABC is always going to come first. We want to make sure that this patient's airway breathing, uh, their blood pressure, hemodynamics are all uh, well-controlled in neurocritical care. And I think this applies to or all of critical care as a whole, you've got that primary injury. You want to prevent secondary injuries, right? So here we know that this patient has this massive intracerebral hemorrhage. She's got cerebral edema. She's got a midline shift. Um, we want to prevent this patient from herniating, even as you're trying to secure this patient's airway. You want to prevent that hematoma expansion as you're beginning to think about what am I going to do definitively for this patient, Uh uh, what are some of those different medications, et cetera, to use? So blood pressure control, airway breathing, breathing um, then moving, moving down to, is this patient on any antiplatelets, anticoagulants, um, and then using very target specific reversal agents. In your diagnostic imaging, making sure, and going back to how we were discussing the first case, CVA is equal to CTA, just based on the story, it's very hard to tease out, just based on the clinical story, who is going to have an ischemic stroke and who's going to have a hemorrhagic stroke, right? So it's going to be important that you you will get vessel imaging as well, both to look at which patients are going to be at a higher risk of their hematoma expansion in the case of an ICH. And sometimes it's also going to give you the underlying etiology of that ICH. For example, is there an AVM or a dural AV fistula? You may be able to glean a lot of information from that CT angiogram as well. So Getting that non-con-CT head is important, but also get that CT angiogram. Uh, There are different signs that can help us identify whose hematoma is going to expand. And then when do we need to call our neurosurgical friends? So I'll talk talk through some of these different points, um, but uh, extremely important, uh, you know, when you're trying to interpret that CT head, you can estimate what is the volume of that hemorrhage. It's going to help us determine what kinds of therapies this patient is going to need. So this uh, formula was developed from the formula, extrapolated from a formula for from the volume of an ellipsoid. Uh, and in patients who have spontaneous ICHs, uh, looking at... Um, this formula essentially with A being the largest or the widest diameter, B being a diameter perpendicular to that largest diameter, and C is the total number of slices uh, that you're getting. So essentially, um, when this formula was derived, the CT slices used to be you know, uh, 10 millimeters in thickness. Now conventionally, most of these slices are 5 millimeters in thickness. So take the number of slices, divide that by 2, then plug it into the formula ABC upon 2, and you'll get your ICH. Volume for our patient who had that big ICH which was nearly you know uh, 100 cc's or so with the midline shift that is not the kind of patient uh, in whom you know we we're uh, going to ask for minimally invasive clot evacuation no we're going to need some more conventional neurosurgical help particularly in appropriate selected patients so we'll talk we'll talk a little bit about that Um, So, yep, that's the volume. And then you can take that volume and plug it into different, you know, uh, different kinds of scoring systems. And one of them is the ICH score.
1: Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that, Neha, because I feel like, Often I'll, I'll, when I'm triaging people from the field, I get called on triage and I say, oh, you know, I have this patient with an ICH score four, um, you know, we feel like maybe there's not much to do. And, and because the ICH score, you know, for those of you who are not following it frequently, the ICH score, um, the higher the score, the higher it was associated with mortality, um, Talk to me a little bit about how you're using that ICH score and are, are you using it for prognosis and, and how should we use that score to guide management?
2: So the simple answer to that question, this ICH score was derived, you know, in the early 2000s. And since then, there have obviously been a lot of other different scores that have uh, have been studied for patients with, with ICH. And a lot has happened in the last 20 years by way of critical care. And we also know there's a whole body of literature on self-fulfilling prophecies. If we tell ourselves early in somebody's course that they're going to have a poor outcome, then it's very likely that we're committing them to having a poor outcome. So this self-fulfilling prophecy literature uh, gives us pause and advises us not to take the ICH score um, into... Um, our prognostication uh, or or developing our prognosis based on the ICH score. So then why even bother calculating the ICH score? So what the American Heart Association recommends about uh, disease-specific scoring systems for for ICH as well as for subarachnoid hemorrhage, the bottom line is that it is Important to document uh, a disease-specific score so that you can begin to have conversations around treatment, knowing that somebody has um, somebody has a higher ICH score should also alert you to the to the fact that yes, in addition to some of those, you know, uh, the ABCs, the ICP management, uh, am I going to need neurosurgical help for this patient to improve their outcome? So that's what the ICH score should. Should potentially be used for. That's how I use it. I'm not using it for prognostication, even for that matter. Dr. Claude Hempel, who developed the score, has also written a wonderful editorial. You know what the ICS score yeah. isn't. So don't use it for prognosis, but use it to guide your management uh, for what additional treatments, therapies, teams you need to get involved.
1: I love that. I think that's so important because I think when people hear, "Oh, I have an ICH score," and, and if someone comes to you and tells you, "Oh, your family member has a 97 percent chance of mortality," you're 100 percent going to think that my my loved one's not going to make it. Whereas I think that what we should be doing is just as you said, say this is a person who's got a really severe brain injury. We don't need to do less. We should probably be more aggressive upfront if that's within the family's goals of care for that patient. And of course, obviously. For me, when I hear ICH score four, I think, oh my gosh, we need to do a lot of, we need to do a lot with this family to determine the best course and potentially do a lot to like make them get through this. So I, I 100% agree. And I think that's a really important pearl that we wanted to leave all the, um, all the listeners with is like, this is, this is not a prognostic tool. All right. So beyond prognosis, <laughs> prognosis or the lack thereof, what are some real things that we can do at the bedside?
2: So we know that a third of these patients, right? With ICH are going to have about 30% of their hematoma expand within the first three hours. Mm -hmm. So super, super important. There are a few things that we can control at the bedside. So with respect to blood pressure, both of these studies, ATAC-2 and INTERACT-2, both had a very similar uh, design. They're both randomized controlled clinical trials. ATAC-2 predominantly, it was all, all uh, American sites, uh, and then the uh, INTERACT-2 study, predominantly European sites. Both of these studies showed that intensive uh, blood pressure treatment versus what is what was at that time currently recommended in the guidelines uh, may not really be too different with respect to how these patients do functionally um, at at three months. There used to be this concern that if you lowered somebody's blood pressure too rapidly or you provided intensive blood pressure control, you may cause some perihematomal ischemia. So what these studies show us for sure that this intensive blood pressure control is safe and uh, does not lead to perihematomal ischemia, but does not necessarily improve outcomes either. But here's a very practical thing that I take away from from these trials, right? You come up with a a particular target. And how often are uh, are our teams on the front lines actually within target? And we're not always measuring that. So for simplicity's sake, what we have done at our center, we'll say for uh, ICH patients, um, a systolic blood pressure goal of less than 140 for patients who have a ruptured aneurysm uh, and it's not secured before their aneurysm is secured, systolic blood pressure less than 140. And uh, then of course, all the thrombolytic, you know, blood pressure goals that uh, the simplest thing to remember, you want that less than one, you know, yes. In that TPA study, you know, less than 185 and is your diastolic less than 110 for simplicity's sake, you know, just systolic blood pressure, less than 180, diastolic less than 105 will be fine. So uh Just keeping that in mind, what medications are you then going to use? So the drips um, that, uh, and using drips may be much better than using boluses so that you get better blood pressure control and these are titratable. And if you have a cuff, then cycle the cuff, um, you know, more frequently till you achieve the the blood pressure that you want, the goal that you want them to be at. If they have an A-line, it just makes our lives a little bit easier, but in the ED, you know, how often are they going to have an A-line? When they're going into hospital transfer, how often are they going to have an A-line? So just making sure that you specify how frequently you want that blood pressure cuff cycled. Drips wise, uh, nicardipine, clavidipine, labetalol drips, all of these, any of these are going to be fine. Uh, but I would recommend avoiding sodium nitroproside or nitroglycerine, which are predominant venodilators um, because you may potentially increase like that. For that patient that, you know, whose scan we showed you, that patient has an elevated raised intracranial pressure. You don't want to give them a medication that's going to be a predominant venodilator uh, because that's going to potentially cause an increase in their ICP. So avoid sodium nitroglycerine, um, avoid sodium nitroproside nitroglycerine. And then of course, various medications can be used to titrate these drips off, particularly after you've proven the stability of somebody's ICH uh, by way of, you know, typically we'll do CT scans six to eight hours from the first CT scan, then we typically also at our center get you know an MRI of the brain to look for the underlying etiology to prevent recurrence of of ICH. Uh, but after we're not going to go stick somebody in the MRI scanner if <laughs> they have ICP crisis. But you know uh, you're you're going to do that as part of their their workup. Yeah, and by the time you're doing that, you know then you can start hydrating the drips off.
1: Hundred percent. Yeah, definitely not putting this person in the MRI machine anytime soon. But I think. um, That really brings us to the point of, of especially when we're thinking about this acute neurologic emergency, so much of neurocritical care is based on the Monroe Kelly doctrine, right? And so what is that? So basically what it is, is that our, our skull is a fixed space. Like there is only so much stuff that can go in there. And in a normal time, like you're sitting there and you have a little bit of CSF the brain component, you have your arterial volume and you have your venous volume, right? That's all that's in there. And that's all that there's space for. So now all of a sudden you have a mass. And in this case, we should have maybe even colored it red because our our mass is a big new bleed that's in there, right? That's going to take up space. And the brain has a little bit of wiggle room. Like the brain itself can adjust up to some point, and the way it does that is it increases venous return. The CSF is able to be pushed into the um, spinal column. So there the brain does have some nice mechanisms for adapting to a little bit of increase in one of these components. But if you're getting to the point where you've got this hundred CC blood volume now in the intracranial space, like the brain really is not adapting to that well. And so what happens is that that brain gets smushed. And as it smushes, it smushes the brainstem. And that's horrible because the brainstem is where our alertness is. It's where our drive to breathe is. And ultimately, if it's if it's squished too much, that patient's not going to wake up. And uh, the patient, we could even herniate and cardiac arrest. Um, So, so much of neurocritical care is focused on, you know, we might not be able to offer the definitive treatment. Sometimes that's our neurosurgical colleagues that can actually create more space by popping the top and letting more, you know, getting rid of the skull and sort of um, uh, getting rid of the need for the Monroe Kelly doctrine. But that takes time. And so at the bedside, what you can do is you can address the venous volume. This is pretty straightforward. And like, easy, anyone can do this. You lift the head of the bed to promote venous drainage. You're making sure that the patient's neck is not like lying over on the side of, you know, kind of squishing one of those IJs. You can also start to, in a really tight spot, hyperventilate the patient. Now, I do want to say like, you know, that red part of our uh, little diagram here, that's our oxygen carrying portion of the blood. Like we want that to get to the brain. We want our brain to have nice oxygen. That's helpful. And that's preventing secondary injury. But In the short term, as we know we're going up to the OR to have that decompressive hemicraniectomy, hyperventilating does buy us a little bit of time. Certainly, we want the patient to at least have uh, normal capnia, right? We definitely don't want this patient, you know, retaining CO2. From the CSF end, this is something that can be done in the ED if you have neurosurgeons that are, um, you know, within your hospital system. The EVD is an easy way to put in, um, you know, a drain that's, that's, getting rid of our CSF. So again, we're like moving a little bit of that component outside the brain and making more space for the mass. And then finally, we can quote dehydrate the brain a little bit. We can shrink that normal brain tissue to make make a little bit more room for this bloody mass that's up there. So how do we do that? Um, You can use either sugar or salt. So what do I mean by that? You can either use mannitol, which is a D, which is is a sugar that has the benefit of being able to be given through a peripheral access, right? Really easy. The only thing that you need to know is that that line needs to be filtered because it can crystallize. Um, And it may improve some brain circulation through a potential of improving uh, blood rheology. I don't think too much about that. What I do think about is that you can give this peripherally. A lot of places stock this in their ED. Great. It does promote an osmotic diuresis. And I think that that's important. Um, that, you know, if you're going to do this, have a Foley in place so that you can replace ins and outs. On the flip side, you can use these really salty solutions. Um, I think most places now have institutional protocols that if you're giving something more than 3%, you're going to usually use uh, central access. Although there has been literature showing that a one-time administration of 23% through peripheral IV was not associated with any other poor outcomes.
2: Casey, have you done that? Have you given? Uh, we, We have done it once uh it created
1: a whole lot of like drama about the situation <laughs> but again like time is brain like we needed we needed this and i think nothing bad happened and i think that gave people more confidence um but it was a it was a really good it was like a large bore it was uh in the anticubital fossa like we had good access do y'all do that frequently
2: so what we've been doing instead is we'll do a direct femoral vein stick mm. and uh, we may leave an angiocath in place to give a second dose because it's hard to keep, you know, hard to keep that needle steady in the femoral vein along with your probe as you're trying to push five CCs at a time, looking at the blood pressure and the heart rate, making sure your patient doesn't become hypotensive and really preventing that secondary neurological injury while you're giving giving 23.4%. So I'll typically give it over you know, five, maybe 10 minutes, just see how they respond to the first five CCs. And that gives me an idea of their hemodynamics. So we've been doing these direct femoral vein stakes, but after reading that retrospective study that included about 50 or so patients uh, with peripheral IV administration of 23.4%, I'm like, whoa, okay, maybe we should try that. Right. Right. It would
1: certainly make things easy. What I do think is funny is that uh, sodium bicarb is 8% salt and no one seems to be upset about giving that through a peripheral. Like I- so I have also sort of sidestepped the, um, the, the anxiety that it seems to cause to give salty solutions by just saying, oh, then we just need an amp of bicarb. Like we need two amps of bicarb and for some reason, like that 8% doesn't seem to bother people so much. So in a, in a pinch, <laughs> I think that you can get some salty fluids in there. That bicarb is also another thing that I keep in my back pocket for, uh, for, um, when I'm triaging people from EDs that may not have mannitol or 23% or even 3%, um, like early to get, everyone's got amps of bicarb.
2: <clears throat>
1: so hypertonic bicarb solutions. Um, again, I, I will emphasize what Neha just said about, um, 23% in some of these really salty, uh, solutions dropping and causing hypotension definitely have seen that happen. And so again, just as she was saying, monitoring those patients,
2: and we'll also keep a Levo, you know, we, we don't end up using as much push dose pressers. We'll just keep a Levo fed drip ready at the bedside and run it. We have a peripheral presser policy, so we run our uh, pressers peripherally up to certain doses. That's great. And
1: I think that that's, you know, just again, thinking ahead, thinking, how can I sidestep some of these potential side, downstream side effects and be ready for them? Just having the, the Levo at the bedside. I also always think about, is this someone who is known to be in um, congestive heart failure? <clears throat> and knowing that even though it's only 30 cc's, you're giving a massive salt load and that for, you know, not every patient who has congestive heart failure, but the ones that are really like kind of borderline and, and come in for their frequent CS- CHF exacerbation, that person's probably not going to tolerate a really big salty load, just in the same way they wouldn't tolerate a big salty meal. So I do try to keep in mind a little bit about the patient's, you know, comorbidities and use that to select, a you know, the osmotic agent that's probably going to be best for them. We could talk all day long about sort of reversal. And I think the one thing that Neha and I wanted to leave you with is just have a plan. Know what your hospital's policy is about giving these reversals. Vitamin K, PCC is sort of my go-to for this. I think it works better. FFP comes with um, a lot of volume, but if you only have FFP, know that vitamin K is going to be the chaser there because both FFP and PCC are not going to last you as long as the warfarin lasts. Like you need something that's reversing warfarin at the same time. DOACs, uh, you know, PCC or
2: NDEXA. Uh, Neha, what, what are your thoughts on Indexa? Y'all using that? Oh, no, we're not using that right now. Uh, our interpretation was we need more data and getting some anti 10 levels and um, the reversal wearing off after a few hours. What does that mean clinically? Do you get hematoma expansion after that or not? So we're looking for more data. We have not put this on our formulary yet, and the cost seemed a little prohibitive with, uh, you know, almost uh, $50,000. Um, so yeah, for now, we don't have it on our formulary, but I'm hearing that the Price point may change. There's going to be more data. We're going to see more registry data as well from centers that are using it. So we'll probably think again about it. But for now, our approach is also using uh, PCC, vitamin K, uh, like you mentioned, Casey.
1: Absolutely. We're on the same page. So PCC all the way. And then heparanoids, you know, every now and then in
2: the hospital, you can give some protamine.
1: All right neurosurgical options. All
2: right. So let's talk about, uh, when are we going to call our neurosurgery friends? So for some of these indications, it's a little bit clearer in other situations, it's a little more difficult and more nuanced. So it's important to have some of these conversations with your neurosurgical neurocritical care colleagues, um, even before you begin to encounter these patients so that you have some kind of consensus on who is going to go to the operating room for what kind of procedure. So for uh, the American Heart Association, uh, as well as the Neurocritical Care Society, both have recommendations for cerebellar ICHs that are more than or equal to three centimeters in any diameter. Uh, This is going to be a uh, life-saving, suboccipital decompressive uh, craniectomy surgery. However, you've also got to be careful in patient selection. Uh, you don't want to offer this life-saving surgery to patients who have, uh, who come in with uh, a pre-morbid, uh, you know, modified Rankin of four or five and they're bed bound. You don't want to do that either. So you've got to be careful. Have the discussion first amongst your colleagues and uh, then present those options to the family. And like Casey was saying, making sure that whatever option you Uh, choose and offer is going to very much be in line with the patient's goals, values, and wishes, particularly at a time when they can't speak for themselves. EVD for CSF diversion, uh, anybody who has uh, an ICH with IVH, IVH, or a primary IVH with hydrocephalus, uh, you want that EVD in place for CSF diversion, also both for treatment as well as for monitoring your ICP. And then for lobar or deep ICHs, uh, and specifically talking about uh, primary ICHs that don't have an underlying vascular etiology, so primary ICHs, low bar or deep. Uh, on a case-by-case basis, depending upon different inclusion criteria, whether you're going to need to uh, offer them more traditional decompressive hemicraniectomy, for example, what happened to our patient uh, versus uh, minimally invasive uh, evacuation techniques. And I'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the cutting edge around that. So this question, you know, should you remove blood? How should you remove blood? When should you do it? how do we uphold time as brain for a disease process that was previously not thought of as you know being as time sensitive? So here the paradigm is shifting. So um, just thinking through some of those options uh, for minimally invasive evacuation. So here's some cutting edge stuff. There are pharmacological catheter-based therapies that are available. Imaging guidance is available to place catheters within the bodies of different uh, hematomas or within the cavities of those hematomas. Irrigation of those catheters with lytic solutions mechanically using either an endoscope or an exoscope with or without leaving a drainage catheter in place. And just to show you a couple of those, uh, the MISTI-3 study, one of the, you know, randomized controlled clinical trials that has looked at uh, minimally invasive surgery, but along with uh, catheter left in place in the hematoma cavity for delivering TPA, there was no difference on the left-hand side. You can see the shift analysis. There wasn't a difference in outcomes that were seen. However, one key takeaway was in those patients, in that subgroup in whom the hematoma, residual hematoma volume was less than 15 cc's, they did have a better outcome. So then it makes you wonder, do we just need better techniques that help us, right. you know, you get get out, things are better. Things are better potentially, right? So, with that in mind, at uh, within our health system right now, we have this um, you know technique that was developed uh, by Dr. Christopher Kellner called scuba. It's called scuba because it's evacuation of the hematoma, you know, underwater. So, essentially, moving from panel A towards panel D, you can see in panel A there is this um, endoscope that is introduced in in the uh, endovascular suite the hematoma is evacuated and that cavity is filled up with cold, uh, you know, saline or cold, uh, sterile water. And then you can also see any, any additional active bleeders and take care of those active bleeders as well. So, and on the uh, extreme right-hand side, you can see what one of those uh, endoscopes looks like. Wow. It's really cutting edge. So
1: mm-hmm. they're, they're flushing water in. they're making sure that nothing else is
2: bleeding. Nothing else is bleeding. That's wow. right. That's why it's called scuba underwater. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Awesome. We need this.
2: All right. So some follow-up here. So how did this patient do? You know, so on post-stroke day zero, we saw this massive hemorrhage, cerebral edema, midline shift, this is not the kind of patient you're going to offer minimally invasive clot evacuation to. And she was relatively young. This, this uh, life-saving surgery was very much in line with her goals, values, and wishes. So she underwent a decompressive hemicranie some hematoma evacuation. You know, you can see a little tip of that EVD in the right frontal horn. And uh, you know, at one and a half years of uh, at the time of her follow-up from the initial stroke, she was able to walk a mile with a cane and she had mild aphasia. So, uh, Casey, just take away points from, from uh, you know, pa- taking care of patients with, with ICH. These, it's very hard to clinically distinguish between who is having an ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. CVA is equal to CTA. Get that vessel imaging in addition to your, you know, non-contrast CT head. And blood pressure control, uh, again, Tight blood pressure control. We have adopted tight blood pressure control. That's our read of the read of literature. But choose one target. Make sure you have processes in place to stick to that target. Uh, Casey went over how you can manage ICP, and you know, quick pearl there for ICP management when you're securing somebody's airway, when you're getting them ready for the OR. Absolutely, introduce all of that in that peri intubation phase as well, because that's a very vulnerable period. You can precipitate herniation and cause secondary neurological injury as you're trying to secure their airway. So introduce all of those different measures as part of your, uh, you know, induction, the peri-induction period. And knowing your reversal agents, just have a plan. There's a lot we can talk about, but just have a plan, be consistent, and then uh, make sure you remember to phone a friend, call your neurosurgical friends for appropriately selected candidates.
1: One hundred percent. All of those are such important pearls. And this is a really common thing. Like this is this is, you know, some of the things we talk about are are more rare, but all of these cases are are things we're absolutely always seeing.
2: With that, let's take you to another case that you are absolutely always seeing So, a patient. uh, Our patient is a 54 year old man. He has a history of alcohol dependence uh, end stage renal disease on hemodialysis gets brought in by EMS after his family finds him confused at home. His vitals on arrival, blood pressure is 205, systolic, 119, diastolic, heart rate 90, afebrile. Labs were remarkable for some anemia, mild hyponatremia. Uh, he's very combative, confused on arrival. Uh, he's getting some antipsychotics, is admit, admitted to the ICU for management of hypertension and further workup. As soon as he comes to your ICU, Casey, he has a GTC. What are we going to do next?
1: Oh, my gosh. So why, why isn't this guy having seizures, I feel like, is the question. So he has so many, right? So I always first ask, like, does this person have a known history of epilepsy? Do they just forget to take their medications? Intoxication or withdrawal. Clearly, this guy is at risk with an alcohol use history. Is he just going through alcohol withdrawal? Metabolic derangements. Now, his sodium is not that low. Like, 129, meh, I'm not excited. But, like, hyponatremia is one of the common things that causes these uh, these seizures. Same with um, hypoglycemia, too. I always think about those two metabolic arrangements. Infection, less common, but something we never, ever want to miss. And then structural uh, lesions. So this is someone who may have thrombocytopenia, who may have fallen and hit his head. Like, I always think subdural. And then finally, is this something, you know, he's very, very hypertensive. He's an end-stage renal patient. Is this something that's posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome?
2: All right. So with that, let's take a look at the the CT head. And we're going from down up. And so far, we're just seeing some diffuse atrophy. Don't see any signs suggestive of trauma. And as we come up, we begin to see these hypodensities in the parieto occipital uh, regions bilaterally. They're they're subcortical and you see them extending a little bit further up as well uh, frontally. Uh, So this Um, is telling us that this patient potentially has press in addition to everything else that's going on with this patient. So um, I'm saying potentially press. I'm not making the diagnosis yet. So what are your next steps?
1: So I think... Anyone who's had a GTC, right, you have to frequently re-examine them. And this is, I think, one of the hardest things for people at the bedside is when do you pull the trigger on intubation and when do you say this person is just postictal? And I give them a little bit of time. Um, When you've had a GTC, there is a period where you just look really somnolent. But if I can get someone to follow commands or just state their name, to me, that's like, this patient is waking up, we're moving in the right direction. If I really can't get a patient to say their name or follow any commands, that to me is a patient that's probably going to buy themselves a tube. And so in this case, we go back to the bedside and we're starting to rubbing him and he's kind of localizing weekly, weekly but we can't get him to follow any commands. And so we intubate him as soon as I possibly can. And fortunately, this is something I think our center does really well is we get him hooked up to EEG and, um, What you see, and you don't have to be an epileptologist to know that there is something really angry about this, right? These are sharp, you wouldn't wanna sit on one of these. They're very high amplitude, these spike wave discharges, and they're pretty frequent. So the one that I have circled there in red, you can see that there are three of those sharp spiky things um, within one of the thick bars, which is a second. So this is at three hertz, meaning this person is in non-convulsive status.
2: Casey, just going back to that point you made, you know, it's so hard to know whether somebody has developed non-convulsive status or are they in a post state if you don't have EEG. And for most centers, including our center as well, it's not super easy to get somebody connected down in the ED when they, you know, that that decision point to intubate, not to intubate. I'll often say for neurocritical care airway, you want to anticipate what is the expected trajectory of their underlying disease process, are are they going to get better if they're postictal? Yes. you know, Just support their oxygenation and ventilation uh, by non-invasive means if you think they're going to be postictal. But without EEG, how do we know? So oh, it's hard. It's really hard. And then there are some things coming down the road
1: though. I feel like there are some more of these like bedside utility. Do you have any experience with those in terms of helping kind of switch your management based on sort of the more bedside not full 20 uh 20 lead montages.
2: You know some of those rapid EEG systems there's one that and no conflict of interest here obviously but uh the, one of those rapid EEG systems Cerebell, um they they published their multi-center study just that feasibility getting a patient connected within 5 minutes. I think that's powerful being able to both diagnose if somebody is in status epilepticus you may be able to pick up that diagnosis uh, but it does not it does not preclude the need for connecting that full montage because EEG gives us so much more information. But for triage purposes, I do think there is a role for rapid EEG uh, in our uh, triage paradigms. Who to transfer, for example, I if know. you don't have continuous EEG monitoring, but you have a patient who's appearing more postictal, they're not in florid status epilepticus, then you can continue your workup on trying to figure out why did have this you know GTC in the first place was it just alcohol withdrawal or did they have any other substances on board etc but yeah I think there is definitely a role we as a health system are currently looking into operationalizing um uh, cerbell for our health system. Uh, our pediatric hospital just did it. They had like a big, you know, uh, new release on, oh, wow. they just did um, operationalize it. But yeah, more to come. I think this is an exciting arena where uh, access to EEG is going to improve and help us better triage patients who are going to need uh, more continuous monitoring as well as potentially decide, you know, is this person postictal or do do we need to intubate and proceed down the pathway of status? epilepticus? hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. I think that will be, like so powerful in terms of, um, better, like better appropriately treating patients. If you know, the more, you know, the more you can, uh, give the patient the right treatment. So we've talked a lot actually, as we've talked through this case about the, the, like time is brain management for status epilepticus. I mean, in all neurologic emergencies, you want to prevent the secondary injury. And for these patients being hypoxic or not protecting their airway can cause major secondary injury. Um, that airway decision can be a tough one. But going down the pathway from there, we know that it's really important to stop seizures quickly. And so the first line therapy is benzodiazepines. And I wanna emphasize here that this is not a small dose of benzodiazepines. These are bigger doses. So we're looking at 0.1 mix per keg, up to four milligrams in each dose times two doses. So up to eight milligrams. And I think there, there's, there is a natural fear about giving that much of a benzodiazepine. Is that going to make the patient sleepier? Is that going to lead to my needing to intubate the patient? But if the patient is having, like if the patient's in status, the only way to break that and the best way to get a good outcome for your patient is to intervene dramatically up front. Then you have some time to select an anti epileptic medicine or an anti-seizure medication, which Neha will talk a little bit through. And then you have a, a sort of a menu of um of infusions to also help break status. And how to select those is also gonna be part of the cutting edge. So before we get into cutting edge, a couple pearls. These take a long time to treat. Status epilepticus is not one of those like, you're in for 24 hours, you're out the next day. These can be a really long process because the brain is injured and the brain takes some time to kind of get back online anticipating the complications with that. So hypotensive with some of these medications, especially those anesthetics. Ilias, a lot of patients end up with their gut paralyzed and you really have to be kind of aggressive about uh, your bowel regimen for these. And then just counseling the patients and families that like we're in it for a long haul here. I love our pharmacist. I think we are so, so lucky to have a neurointensive pharmacist. If you don't have someone who rounds with you, this is a really important time to know that A lot of the older medications have drug-drug interactions, especially with anticoagulation and especially with antibiotics. Just screen the medication list every single day. And some of these anti-seizure medications do not play well together, which is unfortunate. Again, like case-by-case specific, but talk to your pharmacist or call down to the pharmacist and ask them. All
2: right. How are we
1: going to save more brain?
2: So you know, we've, we've been talking about this paradigm, right? Time is brain. Time is brain for acute ischemic stroke. Time is brain for ICH. Time is obviously brain for status epilepticus as well. And just to show you this really neat graphic where, you know, the longer somebody um, somebody has acute seizures and then transitions into status epilepticus, the longer they remain in status epilepticus, their mortality is going to increase. And even when you look at, look at the pathophysiology or what's actually happening at the level of our receptors and neurotransmitters, well, a lot of the GABA is going to get depleted. And a lot of these GABA receptors are going to then change the longer you wait to treat them, no matter how much benzodiazepines you give them, no matter how many GABA agents you give them after a certain point in time, this is not going to work. And so you've have, got. What are the,
1: which are the most common GABA ones you're giving? Like is What are the medications that you might get refractory to?
2: So, you know, benzodiazepines, like you mentioned, whether you're using midazolam, whether you're using um, lorazepam, uh, propofol, uh, you know, patients are just going to start becoming refractory to these medications. And then from refractory status epilepticus, they're going to go into super refractory status epilepticus or malignant status epilepticus. Which then can become, you know, uh, there's going to be so much secondary neurological injury, and mortality is going to increase. So we've got to treat our patients uh, appropriately. And I'll always say this for status epilepticus: parallel process. You've got to think about yes, seizures are a symptom of something, but if you don't treat the underlying cause, you're not going to be able to break it. And by treating that underlying, uh, while well, you're treating that underlying symptoms, of course abc is always going to supersede everything else so making sure that you're securing their airway you have your pressors ready at the bedside as you ramp up their medications so super super important and in our um, you know in our next slide we'll talk about some of those uh, strategies so one cutting edge clinical trial that you should be aware of uh, that looks at a comparison of the second line therapies uh, levotoracetam, phosphanatoin versus valproic acid. The good piece of news, it doesn't matter what you choose. Choose what you have available, but choose the right dose. Right. 60 milligrams per kg. Before this study, I had never used <laughs> 60. It's seemed ridiculous. It's a, it's a ridiculously high dose, but eat um, this is the right right dose, and the dose finding also comes from uh, you know some of the pediatric literature. And there were uh, patients um, older than twelve years of age who were included in ESET. So it makes a lot of sense to use the right dose, load your patients appropriately, and doesn't matter what you choose, whether it's levetiracetam or spenitoin or valproic acid, give what you can quickly. Ugh.
1: So this this really brings up then. So we have given the benzos. We have given uh, like a, a really, you know, the right dose of one of these true anti-seizure medications. And then we have put them on a drip. And I have continued to kind of ramp up my midazolam and my propofol. But you're telling me that sometimes, like no matter how much GABA urgent agent I'm on, like I might still not be able to control status epilepticus. So what do I do? All right.
2: So then let's talk about uh, uh, benzodiazepine or GABAergic sparing agent that has a more synergistic effect to GABAergic agents, for example, ketamine. So, but because these NMDA receptors may be upregulated with that excitotoxic, you know, cascade uh, with glutamate and NMDA, ketamine is a good um, medication to have handy as a, Benzodiazepine sparing agent, hemodynamically as well, it may, it has a better hemodynamic profile as compared to, you know, our benzodiazepine drips or propofol. So, using this in synergy with your benzodiazepines, because it's also exteriorizing some of those internalized GABA receptors. So, it may also make the brain a little more GABA responsive. So in addition to dose sparing, it may also make the brain a little more responsive. So what's the effect? So in patients with super refractory status, in this study, seizure burden was decreased by half within 24 hours of starting ketamine. A lot of patients experienced uh, seizure cessation. And um, these patients who have refractory status epilepticus, super refractory status epilepticus, have a high mortality. So whatever we can do to both, Treat their status epilepticus and find the underlying cause is going to help improve mortality and improve outcomes in these patients. Uh, Casey, I wonder because there's not a lot of guidance on when you know when should you introduce ketamine. What is your practice? When are you introducing ketamine? Yeah, so I think for us, I mean, when we are getting probably even
1: lower than one mg per cake sometimes. In some cases, you know, we as a center had sort of had a philosophy of you do a little bit of uh a little bit of, Versed, a little bit of propofol. So you have a little bit of the two on board. And then quickly we were kind of realizing that that wasn't helping. And so we have moved more uh, to more early adoption of just starting people on ketamine with a bolus up front. So I think that that's been one of the really important things that I've taken away is once I get in, into sort of the one mig per kg of um, a Versa drip, then switching into giving a two migs per kg bolus of ketamine and starting the drip. And I sometimes find that that bolus is really a, a powerful thing. And thus, as I'm up titrating the ketamine drip, I'll bolus as I go up too, which I, I you know, I have seen really good response to this. And I feel like ketamine is sort of a silver lining and and the anti-seizure medication, you know, not all things play nicely together, that these do kind of play nicely with our GABAergic drugs um, and create more synergy. What what is y'all's sort of
2: magic? Very, you know, very similar right now. There isn't consensus amongst us, um, just given that we don't have literature to guide, but we're also moving you know, to starting ketamine a little bit early on, and uh, there is a pediatric randomized control clinical trial that's looking at you know, sort of ketamine uh, first. So I don't know if the adult literature will also move in that direction, but yes, we are also starting ketamine earlier. Um, previously, I used to do this by the time somebody's Versed drip was at, you know, 1.8 milligrams per kg per hour or two milligrams per kg per hour. But now I am definitely introducing this early the, uh, you know, quick sort of clinical pearl when you're using ketamine, when you're using benzodiazepine patients can develop super refractory metabolic acidosis. So you have to be careful. You've got to be, you know, watchful, uh, whether that's happening to your patients or not. And, you know, in, in that case, looking at other alternative strategies for super refractory status, but uh, not continuing, uh, these two drips in that situation. Totally.
1: So in this case, We
2: see now. Uh, Look at this dramatic improvement, right? All those angry uh, (laughs) spike and wave discharges are gone, and the frequency has gotten much better. So, yes, uh, you do see electrographic improvement uh, with with ketamine. We'll do just
1: a quick little, a couple pearls to leave you with reversible, uh, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Think about these in the patients that come in really, really hypertensive. the two patient populations that I kind of think of with these is that it's on the spectrum of hypertensive encephalopathy. I think of that as almost a subgroup of press. I also think of eclampsia as on the subgroup of press and that these are all sort of a spectrum. So I'm really thinking about this in pregnant patients with high blood pressure and patients um, with high blood pressure who maybe uh, like don't usually live at high blood pressure, um, such as someone with new onset um, hypertension. So renal failure is also another one of those classic sort of triggers in Sage renal disease. Um, there are also some systemic diseases. Calcineurin inhibitors are a really big one in the transplant population and um, sacro and acerolimus being two really classic triggers of this. It's pretty like, For most patients, most of the time, this can be clinically managed just by stopping the offending drugs, making sure that you're lowering their blood pressure by 25%, and then avoiding some hypomagnesium. I think there's a little bit of clinical data from that, and it certainly doesn't hurt, Um, particularly not in our eclamptic or preeclamptic patients. Um, The two things to leave you with is that press is not always posterior. So a lot of this, you'll see that there's a lot of brainstem involvement. That's in the posterior circulation, but isn't that classic uh, occipital lobe distribution? You can also see press in the anterior distributions. And so it's not always posterior. And then it's not all that is posterior white matter change is press. And this is, I have gotten burned on this before by like, scanning someone in the head CT, seeing some white matter changes at the back of the brain and saying, man, this press, like it'll get better with time. I do find that it's really helpful to once the patient is stabilized, get an MRI because we get so much more detail with that MRI and all of these actually ended up as tumors. And so again, not all, not all posterior things is press and press is not always posterior. Press and seizures are kind of hand-in-hand, up to two-thirds of patients, and as many as 10% progress to status epilepticus, unfortunately, there's just not enough, uh, there's not enough literature to guide sort of prophylactic treatment. But for our patient, you know, these are about a month apart. Remember that our our status patients, unfortunately, do kind of stay with us a long time, but from there, there's our MRI to a follow-up head CT, Um, this this is great in that it was reversible and treated, and the patient actually did really, really well. So that brings us to the end of case three. There
2: are more cases to come, but we're going to take a short break. And then we'll record back two after this. And one quick pearl, do not close your diagnostic window too early. Yes. And it's, it's super important to have a broad enough differential, but time is brain. So make sure that as you're developing your differentials, is this structural? Is this electrographic? Did we do this to the patient? Is this iatrogenic? Is this a combination of all of those three things? If you remain systematic in developing your differentials, not closing your diagnostic window too early, parallel processing, this applies to everything. everything. <laughs> I think time is brain.
1: Yeah. Interact, uh, start that treatment as soon as you can. And we'll be back for more uh, in just
2: a few minutes. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: End meeting.